But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Galatians 5:22 to 23. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This weather um, reminds me of England. I hope you don't get tired of me talking about England because I'm not going to stop. So sorry if you feel tired of it. <laughs> I beg your pardon, not really. Um, but this weather does remind me of England. When I lived in Portland, lots of folks who were from California would bemoan the fact that it rained so much. And I had zero concept for that because there was like far more sunshine in Portland, Oregon than there was in England. So I um, always feel like I'm getting a, a wee British hug on days like today. Um, and I also talk a lot about my dad. These would be the days where my dad and I on a Sunday afternoon would go for a walk in the Dales, the Yorkshire Dales. Um, be the best kind of Sunday afternoon activity. And the majority of the time it would be like this weather and so you're kind of sludging along. Um, but the dales are these kind of undulating hills in the north part of the country of England, and it's gorgeous even in the rain. And um, my dad just sent me a picture not too long ago. He's taking himself a selfie. It was not a Sunday afternoon, but it was the Sunday afternoon. He's like, up in the dales, head. Little nudge, nudge, wink, wink, wish you were here. Um, and as I would go, I always follow my dad in the dales, so my dad's like trudging up, you know, the rain, and I'm always following my dad. And my intention is like so that I can kind of keep in step with him. My dad's tall and he's strong. And so inevitably he can usually go with a quicker, bit of a quicker pace than I could. But I wanted to keep in step with him. And so oftentimes instead of looking at the scenery, because we could look at the scenery when we got to the top of the dales and walked along, I would be looking at his boots you know, I'm looking at my dad's boots, because at first when you walk up a dale, it's quite steep. In England, we call it walking, and here you call it hiking. So what I'm talking about is hiking. So we're hiking, and I am just following my dad's feet. I'm following the back of his boots so that I can keep in step with him. It's a good memory that I have with my father. 
And for the next couple of months, as Julie read from Galatians, she talked about the fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. These are the fruits that are manifested in us by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is Jesus' presence with us now. And it felt important that we talk about the Spirit because we finished, we just went through the entire book of Mark, the gospel that Mark wrote. At the end of that book, Johnny reminded us that he posed a question of how do we respond to the mysterious victory of Jesus? Do we tell? Do we go and tell? Or do we freeze in fear? And at first, the disciples, they initially froze. They were unsure of themselves. And then Jesus said that he would send the Spirit in power so that they would be able to go and be a witness, tell the story of Jesus all over the world. That happened in Acts chapter 1. He promised his own presence through the power of his Spirit. Then in Acts chapter 2, on the day what we call Pentecost, his Spirit came in power. The followers of Jesus were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so as we look at Galatians and these fruits, it's a way of keeping in step with the Spirit, the work of God in us and in the world. And Paul was writing to a young church, the church of Galatia, and he said, walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. And then he describes the fruits that were just read. As you keep in step with the Spirit, those are the fruits that you can expect to show up as a community in your life. The fruit of love, the fruit of joy, the fruit of peace, of patience, of kindness, of meekness, of gentleness, and of self-control. And those weren't just good words for that little church in Galatia, but they're good words for us too. Having just gone through the book of Mark and understanding that the presence of Jesus remains with us by his spirit, we want to be a community of people that keeps in step with the spirit. And so we've decided for the next couple of months to look at this, to look at how we can participate in the life of the spirit of Jesus. And so we start out in, in Corinthians. You can turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is where we'll be. And as we begin, um, let's just pray together. Jesus, thanks that um, it is a mysterious victory that you showed us through the book of Mark. And that then you promised the power of your spirit to come in our midst so that your presence would be with us in a very tangible way. So I pray now that for the next couple of months as we think about what it means to keep in step with you, that you would deepen our faith. That we would be those who would be responsive. That we would know how to tell your story with our actions. And so we just pray today as we look at 1 Corinthians 13 that um, yeah, those of us who walk in with skepticism or doubt or uncertainty, that you would, you would speak to us. 
Speak to us loudly and speak to us clearly. Because you want to. We know that you want to. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I have a question for you. It's going to be rhetorical. There might be a point um, where I'm asking for some feedback. But this is a moment where I want you just to think in your own mind. And so because you're thinking in your own mind, you can be honest. Nobody's going to hear what's going on in your own mind. What do you believe makes someone significant? You're not looking for the right answer, just looking for what it is that you believe. What do you believe makes somebody significant? How attractive they are, how much knowledge they have, how many degrees they have. What is it? How much money they have. What is it that you believe makes somebody significant? Just think about that for a minute. Now, what do you think or what do you believe makes somebody spiritually significant? Might be the same, might be different. What makes a person significant as a follower of Jesus? Is it faith? How well you know your Bible? What makes somebody significant spiritually? Paul, who writes the book of Corinthians, the book that we're going to be in today, is pretty spiritually significant as far as the world would perceive him. He had a pretty intense conversion story. If you don't know about it, you can read it in the book of Acts. He was persecuting the church and he encounters Jesus. And then he writes the majority of the New Testament. Kind of puts him up there, right? As spiritually significant. You're going to pen an entire like, book that people refer to for their spiritual lives. And he writes about spiritual significance, which is something that the Corinthian church were really, really into. They were really into what made them stand out as Jesus followers. And so at the beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this whole letter, Paul is addressing how they perceive themselves as in terms of spiritual significance. And at the beginning of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, you will notice when we read it that Paul is writing in the first person singular. So if I, Paul, were to, and he's doing that intentionally, He's using the first person singular in order to be able to reveal something to this community of people who are looking at themselves as pretty spiritually significant. And so notice, when we, read, when we read this together, notice what he's saying as he uses that. If I, Paul, apostle, writer of most of the New Testament, if I, Paul, were to speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I, Paul, gain nothing. The Corinthians had elevated tongues, which some people would refer to as a prayer language, as a way of showing off their spiritual significance. They had elevated this prayer language to be like, oh yeah, you think you're spiritual? Well, I'm more spiritual. Listen to me pray. They'd valued it and they had elevated it. And so Paul is addressing it and he says, you know what? If you pray like that without love, you're just a clanging noisemaker. You are just irritating. You know, something just dinging around. You're just irritating is what you are. You're not spiritual, you're irritating. And then he expands it and he pulls out three other actions that done in the power of the Spirit, which they also valued, prophecy and knowledge and faith. And knowledge and faith are things that we too often elevate. And here he, he kind of exaggerates a little bit to prove his point. He says, I, Paul, hypothetically, let's say, let's say that I could understand all mysteries. A little bit of hyperbole. If I had all knowledge, there wasn't any more knowledge for me to have because I had all of it. Or if I had all the faith that there ever could be in the world, if I had all of it, so much so that I could move mountains, if I had all of that. But if I had all of that without love, what does he say? I am nothing. Right? And he says more in this moment. It's more than his action is worth nothing. He cuts to the very core of the person. I am worth nothing. If I have all of those things but not love, I am nothing. So even if he could do these things to the fullest extent, but if he was doing them without love, it wouldn't be significant. It'd be nothing. And then he takes one final step further, self-sacrifice. Which I think maybe most people would say stands out as the most significant, maybe not even just spiritually significant, but the most significant thing that we could do for another human or another person or a country or whatever is to sacrifice ourselves. And Paul says, if I give away everything that I have, or if I were allow my body to be burned, I would be martyred, and yet I did that without love, I would gain nothing. All of this put into action without love is worthless, says Paul. And the Corinthians had consistently demonstrated their lack of love towards others, but they were really big on these so-called spiritually significant things, and Paul is calling them out. It's like in the middle of all of this frenzied activity, 
he stops and pulls out the tuning fork and he's like, hey, are we on key here? In the middle of all this activity, are we on key? I wonder what he would say to us. I wonder what he would say to me. I wonder what he would say to you. If you fight the cause of injustice, if you take up the cause for other people, if you know a lot, you can teach a lot, if you lead, if you're a really good leader, if you can make a good plan because you're organized, or you host people, or you help people, or you serve people, And yet, when you examine your heart and you don't find love there, Paul is saying that it sounds empty and that it feels empty and that it is empty. And that what you actually have got is nothing. It's intense, right? sounds empty, it feels empty, it is empty, you've got nothing. If it isn't motivated by love. So then the obvious question we have to ask after hearing that is, all right, Paul, then, so what, what is love then? All of that stuff doesn't mean anything without it being driven or motivated or undergirded by love. Then tell us what love is. And so Paul does, he says, tells us exactly what love is, what it, what it does, what it feels like, what it sounds like. Let's look together. This is four to seven. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's read it again. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What is love? Love is hard. Right? That is hard. Love is hard. It's not just a feeling. It's not just words. It's demonstrated, and it's demonstrated by patience and kindness, not wanting our own way or being rude or arrogant or irritable. Dude, I was driving in the car yesterday, and this is literally in my head, and I'm so irritable. I was like, oh, hello. Hello, lack of love. I'm like, get out of my way, you're so slow, I've got somewhere to be. And I'm all, hello, irritability. Right? 
It's not hard to not embody love in very small spaces like your own car. Love is hard. I was officiating a wedding yesterday, and um, we're in these aspen trees up in Park City. Beautiful. We had a little um, gap in the rain, thankfully, so we could hold the wedding outside. I was standing there, the bride and groom were in front of me, and all the details are taken care of. It's like a great moment, you know, that oh, sigh of relief. So usually if a bride and groom is standing in front of me, I'm like, okay, you, you made it. Just take a deep breath. Take it all in right here, right now. Here you are at this moment. And I told them as they were standing in front of me that all the planning that they'd done, the dress, those significant the party that we were about to have, those significant, the people that are standing around them, those significant, I wanted them to know that the moment that they were standing in front of me was the most significant of all the things that they'd done and planned for. And I communicated to them that it was significant because of what they were about to say to each other. They're about to make a promise. A promise out of the love that they had for each other. And I told them that the reason that the promise that they were about to make to each other was so important is because it reflected a love that they already have, a love that is already theirs. So when God said he loved us, he meant it. When God said he'd be with us in the good times and the bad, He meant it. When God said he would be faithful, he meant it. When God said he would persevere through suffering, he did. And when God said he would sacrifice, he followed through. And we know that that is most fully demonstrated in Jesus. It's made real in Jesus. We just read that in the book of Mark. That all of these things are true and made real in Christ. And so I told them that when their differences showed up, they would need to reach for something more profound than each other. To overcome fear and disappointment and pride. Because for those of you who are married, and even for those of us who aren't, we know that fear and disappointment and pride can show up very strongly in the context of relationship. Most strongly, perhaps, in the ones that we are closest to. So I told them that they would have to reach for something more deeply than themselves, to overcome their fear and their disappointment and their pride. And on their toughest days of marriage or their most passionate, that his love, the love of Christ's would be enough love within them to keep the promises that they made yesterday. They wouldn't have enough love to do it on their own. That it would be his love within them that would be enough 
to keep the promises that they made beneath these aspen trees yesterday. His love is enough within us. And as I was reading this passage on love, different commentators around this section kept drawing out that these words are actually reflective of the life of Jesus. That when we read these, the visual that we can see coming out of this page maybe isn't so much that we would need to see an image of ourselves, but that we see an image of Christ. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. He doesn't demand his own way. He's not irritable. He doesn't keep a record of being wronged. He doesn't rejoice about injustice but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Jesus never gives up. Jesus never gives up on us. He never loses faith. He's always hopeful. And he endures through every circumstance. So what does it mean if he can love like that and we're supposed to? In chapter 12 of this letter to the Corinthian church, Paul talks about one spirit uniting us as followers of Jesus. And it's from that spirit that we're meant to drink. And so if we're parched on love, if we're all run out, we drink from the spirit of Jesus. And as Jesus' people, we begin acting and moving out of love that is cultivated in us by his Spirit. One that is patient and kind and not jealous or proud or boastful. That doesn't keep records of wrongs, but believes and endures and hopes. And it's not a demand. a challenge or an invitation to keep in step with the Spirit so that out of us will come love. And so how do we do that? How do we keep in step with the Spirit so that this thing that is clearly a description of who Jesus is becomes a description of us, his people, his body, his representatives, the one that tell his story of love in the world to one another and then to the city. How do we do it? That's where the practices come in. Over the next couple of months, we're going to be talking about specific historical practices that we can do as a community that cultivate the fruits of the Spirit within us. And like I said, it's hard to love. But it's harder to love our enemies. People who have hurt us, people who have let us down, people who have disappointed us, people that we disagree with. It's hard enough to love the ones that we would call friends or lovers. It's harder still to love our enemies. 
In Matthew chapter 5, there's a command from Jesus and he says to love our enemies. And immediately after that, he says, pray for those who persecute you. Love and prayer are paired together. Jesus spends a lot of time praying. And he teaches his disciples how to pray. And prayer is a way that we cultivate closeness to God and God declares that he is love. And so in our closeness with God, what will be formed in us is love. Because love is who God is. And our actions of love will be cultivated by the Spirit through the practice of prayer. The actions that we can have that will move us out of love will be cultivated in us by the Spirit through the practice of prayer. And it is a practice. And for some of you, you hear me talking about prayer and it's related to love and you might just be like, uh, that's not really what I was hoping for today, Heather, that you would tell me to pray. I haven't really prayed in a minute or a lot of minutes. Or I have prayed and it didn't really feel like anything happened and I don't really know what prayer is all about. We're told to come as a child. Kids don't generally rehearse what it is that they have to say. And today I was standing at the back chatting with somebody and their kid was telling them something about what they wanted. And um, Haley said to me after, she's like, you think that if you just stand there and kids are trying to tell you something, that they would just stop? And she's like, they don't. They just get louder and louder and louder. Feels like children could teach us a little something about prayer. That we would keep on. That we would keep on and on and on and on and on. Because there would be a belief that the God who is love wants to attend and hear, even if we feel a bit skeptical and cynical that he is hearing. If we need structure, we have a whole book called the Psalms. It's the prayer book of the Bible. We can pray in quiet or in silence. We can pray with other people. Or we pray alone. Or we can pray as a whole community. Which is what I want us to do together now. We're going to practice. Because we're going to be doing the practices together. So I was like, why don't we get after it and practice a bit today? There's a group that met this morning. You can come every Sunday morning at 9.30, 9.45 and pray in the prayer um, glass chapel right behind us if you want to just pray with people. These are practices that we do that cultivate the life of the Spirit in us so that the fruits of the Spirit show up through us. And so we're going to be practicing together for the next few months. And we want to practice prayer. And so today it might feel a little bit risky, but what I want us to do is pray. Pray that we would be... um, people who love, that the characteristics that the Corinthian church were written to would actually show up at Missio Day Church in Salt Lake City. 
that our actions wouldn't be void of love, that the things that we do wouldn't be worthless, but instead they would be motivated by love as cultivated by the Spirit through the practice of prayer. And so I'm going to ask us to practice together as a community this morning to practice prayer. If you feel comfortable, you can shout your prayers aloud. And if you don't, you can say them silently. And I'll guide you through what I want us to be praying for. There's just three different things that I want us to pray for, and they're all related to love. And so we'll pray together. You can either close your eyes or um, look straight forward or look at the ground or look up or do whatever posture feels comfortable to you. We're going to practice praying. And first of all, I want you to pray for the people in this city. Maybe it's teachers or CEOs or government leaders or police. Anybody that comes to mind that you see in your mind's eye that lives in this city, in Salt Lake City. And I want you to pray that they would receive love. that government leader, that teacher, that police officer, that foster kid. I want you to pray that they would be the recipients of love. Now I want you to pray that they would demonstrate love. Imagine them this week, whether it's with a kid or somebody that they're working with, pray that they would demonstrate love. That this city this week would be activated by love. Now I want you to pray for a person close to you, a family member or a friend, either from the present or the past. Maybe somebody that you already feel affection for or somebody that's hurt you. I want you to pray that they would receive and demonstrate this kind of love. And if you feel comfortable, I just want you to call out their name so that we can pray that name with you. Pray for this person close to you by name.
Now I want you to pray for yourself. That you would receive love this week. Maybe there's an area where you need somebody to demonstrate patience towards your love. That someone would show you grace in your own irritability or resentfulness. That even in your own wrongdoing, when you feel like you want to give up, I want you to pray that you would receive love. Pray that the Spirit would cultivate in you this kind of love and that your actions would be motivated by love. Jesus, we know that you're patient and kind. We know that you don't envy and you don't boast, that you're not arrogant or rude. Jesus, we know that you're not insistent on your own way and you're not irritable or resentful. We know that you endured and that you have hope and that you bear all things. So Jesus, um, call us into connection with you, a deep connection that is born of your spirit so that what is true of you can be reflected in us. Thanks that you delight to make us like that. You delight to make us whole. You delight to make us loving. You delight to pour your spirit out through us and in us so that we can experience and demonstrate love. And so call us into this practice of prayer that connects us to you. That connects us to all of what you are and who you are. So that we will be like your church that tells your story. Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem and all of the world that we would witness to your love in this city. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.